following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Last week, those of you that were here, you remember we did the big overview of the biblical story. And in fact, uh, if you've got primary kids out in Boost at the moment, or out with Biffy and the leaders, uh, they are going through this morning the Big God Story. There's a wonderful book called The Big God Story by Michelle Anthony, and it tells the one big story of Scripture that I summarized last week uh, in kind of a complicated way, but the story tells it in a very simple way for kids. So if you're looking for a book that will, t- that will talk your kids through the story of Scripture as one story, you know, how even with the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's still got the stories and they all fit together, but this is just a story, and it's God's big story. So it's a great resource. The kids are hearing that this morning. What I want to do, uh, you might remember last week when I talked through that story of Scripture, right at the beginning of the story, I touched on the part where God creates humanity and He makes us in His image. The Bible says, or God speaking, says, let us make mankind in our image. And I said at the time that I wanted to circle back to that idea today, and unpack it a little bit, which I do. I want to talk about what it means for us as human beings to be created in God's image. It's a foundational idea. It's a foundational truth. Uh, If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard that idea. It's quite familiar to a lot of people that we are made in God's image. We kind of know that rolls off the tongue. We don't always understand what it means. There's various ideas about what that, what that all means and what does it mean, what part of me is God's image and what, how, do, how do I image God and how does all that work. So I want to unpack this. I want to explore this a little bit this morning with you, okay? You're excited, aren't you? Holiday weekend. Boy, I'm going to have to wake you up. All right, here we go. So I'll tell you how I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to start with a little bit of history from the 1930s. That should do the trick. In the 1930s, in Germany, when the Nazi government came into power, one of the ways in which Hitler and the, and the Nazi government sought to exercise control over all aspects of life and society in Germany, which was their aim, this totalitarian sort of control, was through the church. And Hitler really saw the church as an organ of the state. That's what he wanted it to be, an organ of state control, of state propaganda to disseminate Nazi philosophy. So the very year that Hitler was elected, uh, there was a group of Nazi clergy that took control of the Lutheran church in Germany, and they appointed a Nazi bishop, and they began governing the church according to Nazi principles. Uh, And of course, Nazism is not just a political party. It's an idea. It's a philosophy. It's this ideology, and at its heart is an extreme racism, an ugly, ugly, extreme racism that basically says the Aryan people, the Germanic peoples, they are the master race. They are the ultimate. They are the superior race. And all other cultures, all other ethnicities in varying ways, are less than. They are inferior to. They are subordinate to the Aryans. That was basically the the philosophy. And interestingly, Hitler, even though Hitler himself, by all accounts, was an atheist, and he became increasingly hostile to religion, sometimes in his public speeches, he would talk about this philosophy, and he'd dress it up in Christian language. And he'd refer to God. And he'd talk in kind of Christianese, maybe to appeal to Christians, maybe to try and win them over. And at one point, he even talks about the image of God, and he describes what he thinks the image of God is. And I've got the quote here. He says, whoever would dare to raise a profane hand 
against that highest image of God among his creatures, and he's talking about the Aryans, would sin against the bountiful creator of this marvel and would collaborate in the expulsion from paradise. So in Hitler's mind, the Aryan race and the image of God, synonymous. That if you are one of the Aryan, you're one of the chosen few. You, you bear the image of God. That's Hitler's view of the world. And then all other races and cultures to varying degrees had less of the image of God than that. They had less of. They bore the image of God less fully. And you get all the way down the bottom of the hierarchy, according to Nazism, all the way down the bottom of the ladder of people and tribes and races and cultures. And the, the Nazis had a word for people at the bottom. Untermensch is how it's said in German. Untermensch. And it literally means subhuman or non-human. And these were people who they believed just didn't have the image of God or had very, very little of it. And the Nazis put a number of cultures in that category of being the untermensch, being the subhuman ones, including, of course, the Jews. And you can see how this provides a justification for killing people. That if you hold to this doctrine, I use the word doctrine loosely, that certain people are less than human or non-human, it provides this legitimacy for mistreating people, for imprisoning people, for ultimately Hitler's final solution, the Holocaust. And it's hard to imagine, I think, a time in human history when the biblical idea of the image of God, this beautiful idea, has been more twisted and been more warped and misused and abused and bent out of shape than used to provide justification for mass murder. It is one thing to take the life of another person, hideous as that is. It's another thing to use the doctrine of the image of God to do it. It's almost beyond belief, but this is what went on. And the saddest thing about all this, one of the sad things, is that so many Christians in Germany at the time were completely passive. Well, I think this is an interesting thing for Christians to think about today. If you were sitting in a church in Germany... In the 1930s, if you were sitting in a Lutheran church, how would you have responded? Well, as, as the Nazi philosophy is being disseminated, sometimes from the pulpit, as the church is being like a puppet for the government, so many Christians, completely passive, just absorbed it, didn't raise objections, just went along with it. And we'd all like to think we wouldn't do that, right? But the majority of God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians were completely passive during that time. There was a group, though, that weren't. There was a group of dissenters. There's a group of people that really stood against what the Nazi government was trying to do, and particularly what they were trying to do to the church. And this group, this little movement, it became like a little resistance movement. It was called the Confessing Church. It's a wonderful, shining light of what the church is supposed to be, I think, in a dark, dark moment in history. Here's a group of people. You might know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A pastor associated with, he was a leading light in the confessing church movement. And the, these, these were a group of Christians and pastors and leaders who said, we are not simply going to stand by and allow this dehumanizing system to carry on and to infiltrate the church. They began meeting as separate societies, separate little groups. 
They had their own meetings. They lived out a different way of being human. They held to the idea of the image of God, and they treated all people as those made in God's image. They even adopted their own confession or their own statement of faith, if you like. And that was drafted by a man named Karl Barth. And I want to pick up on Barth this morning a little bit, Karl Barth. I want to draw some insights from Karl Barth because he's an interesting guy. He would be, Karl Barth would be one of the major theologians, theological minds in the history of the church, certainly in the modern church. One of the major theological figures in the 20th century. And he's writing theology. He's writing deep theology in the 1930s in Germany. He's writing about the image of God. And he makes one of the most important contributions to thinking about and articulating the doctrine of the image of God. Not in this kind of abstract way, but in the midst of a crisis. In the midst of perhaps the crisis of humanity that was going on. That's, why, that's what makes him so profound. It makes him worth listening to, I think, his thoughts on the image of God. So I want to draw a little bit on how Bart sees the image of God from Scripture, how he applied it in his day, how we might apply that in our day. When you read Karl Barth's theology of the image of God, there's one point that stands out more clearly than any other point. There's one thing that Karl Barth reminds us about with the, when it comes to the image of God. And that is that the image of God is not a thing. It's not part of us. It's not a certain part of you. It's, we often think of the image of God as the attributes that make us more like human beings and less like the animals. That set of qualities or set of attributes, our mind or our soul or our rational capacity or whatever it is, uh, that make us human. And those things might be included, but what Karl Barth brings us back to is that idea the image of God is not a thing. It is a person. This is the most important thing to grasp with the image of God. It's not a thing. It is a person, and it is a single person. Guess who it is? Jesus right? No surprises there, really. There's, there's nothing particularly novel about this. The image of God is Jesus. That's the starting point. This is the beauty of Bart's theology, is everything he did was ruthlessly Christ-centered. And he would start and he would end with Jesus, and he does the same with his image of God theology. And he said, we've got to come back to Jesus and see that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one true image of God. So whatever else we're going to say about the image of God and whatever else it means for us, the starting point, our true north, needs to be seeing and naming Jesus as the one true image of God. So I want to do that. I want to read out a verse from Scripture that makes it clear. Jesus is the image of God. It's a verse from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Just one short verse. Um, look it up. You're welcome to look it up if you would like. Just the beginning of a whole paragraph that Paul writes about the supremacy of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. But in verse 15, he makes this short statement and says, The Son, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the language is important. You notice that Jesus is not said to be in the image of God. That's what's usually said about humanity in the Bible, that we are in the image of God. But when the Bible comes to describe Jesus, it doesn't say he is in the image of God. It says he is the image of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's the difference between Jesus and us. We're created in God's image, but Jesus is the one true, shining, perfect, pure image of God. That's who he is. So you could think of it as, if you think of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, like an original document that you'd put on a photocopier, right? The Trinity is the original 
Jesus is the first perfect color copy running off the photocopier of that original document. The Trinity is the original. Jesus is the image, the, the perfect picture image of the Trinity. And then what does that make us? Who are we? We are images of the image, aren't we? Sounds funny to say, but we are. We're, in a sense, we're copies of the image. That doesn't make us, that doesn't devalue us. In fact, it lifts us up that we would be images, not just of God in general, we are images of Christ, the one true image of God. So the question then becomes, what does it mean to say Jesus is the image of God? What does it mean for Jesus to be the image of God? And Karl Barth's helpful here. He has a little two-sided way of talking about this, just a very simple way of thinking about how Jesus expresses what it means to be the image of God. And that is that he is for God and he is for others. That's it. Simple stuff today, right? That's what it means for Jesus to be the image of God, that he is totally for God and he is totally for others. Jesus was for God and that when we're talking about Jesus during his earthly life here, he was, his whole being orientated around God. His will bent to the will of the Father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He was the obedient son. He was the faithful son. He was the son whose submission to the Father led him to the cross. That's how obedient he was. He was totally for God. And he was for others. He was affected by people. He cared about people. He moved towards people. And in particular, he moved towards people, to use that word again from a later era, he used toward you move towards people who would have been considered the untermensch, the subhuman ones. If you think about who that might have involved in the first century, they were often the people that you see Jesus moving towards with love and with grace and with compassion. Those who were considered ritually impure, those who were considered ceremonially unclean, those who were mentally ill, those who were disabled, those who were children, women, those who were just given an inferior status by the culture of their day, those from other ethnicities that people despised. Jesus crossed all those lines, destroyed all those taboos, and he moved towards the untermensch, the subhuman ones, and he treated them as they were men and women and children made in the image of God. And he lifted them up and gave them that dignity. He treated all people, all God's children, as those who bore the image of God. Jesus was for others. He moved towards others with love, kindness, compassion, right? This was who he was. This was his heart. So Jesus was for God and he was for others. And this starts to give us a bit of a view of what it might mean for us to be created in the image of God. If Jesus is the image, if he's the one true image, and we are all images of the image, we're images of Jesus. What does it mean for us to be created in the image of God? It means that just like Jesus, we were made for God and for others, right? Simple. We're made for God and for others. The image of God is so relational. It's not just this thing. It's not a commodity. It's not a substance. It's two primary relationships. You could add more, but two primary relationships, love for God, love for others. We were created for God. Just as God is for you, you know how much God is for you? God is for us, and we were created for Him. That's why St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Our hearts are always restless, always longing for their true home in God. We were created for God. We were created to know God. Our hearts are going to be restless until we find Him and connect our heart with His heart and come into relationship with Him. 
and we were created for others, right? Just as Jesus was for others, we were created for relationship with one another, to have genuine relationship, not to be solitary, not to be hermits, not to be isolated, to have genuine community with one another. One of my favorite parts of my job is taking weddings. Love taking weddings. Love being there on that day. The bride's walking down the aisle. Always catch a glance at the, at the groom at that point, you know, as the bride's coming down, see if there's any glistening tears in his eyes. It's fantastic. And I love being able to be there and pronounce this couple to be husband and wife. There's three couples in our church getting married this year. Three couples at Shaw, Jason and Micah are one of them, and two others. And then another couple, Andrew and Karen, that are going to renew their wedding vows soon. This is so exciting. It's great for all of us as a community to have these marriages happening in the life of our church. And I love being a part of that. And when you have these two people standing here about to commit each other as husband and wife, what you are seeing in that moment is a reflection of the image of God. It's not the only time you see it. I'm not saying marriage is the only way we express the image of God, but that's really what they're doing, isn't it? Making these sacred promises to each other. They're imaging Christ. They're imaging the love that exists within the being of God. They're exhibiting the love that Jesus showed to others while he was on earth. This kind of covenant that we enter into, the selfless, sacrificing love that we promise to each other, we're imaging. We're imaging God. So we are created for God, and we are created for others. Now, here's a little question for you to ponder, a little theological question for you to ponder. At the beginning, when God created humanity, these relationships were working right. They were working as they were supposed to work. Human beings, Adam and Eve, they were for God, and they were for others. Now, if that state of affairs had continued, in other words, if human beings had never sinned, would Jesus have still needed to come? Here's an interesting question to ponder over a cup of coffee. If human beings had never sinned, would Jesus still have needed to come? I think most of us instinctively say, well, no. What would have been the need? What would have been the point? Jesus came to rescue us from sin, didn't he? He came to die for our sins. If we hadn't sinned, we wouldn't need Jesus. But I think, I wonder whether that overlooks one of the reasons that Jesus came. That Jesus didn't only come for our salvation. That was certainly an absolutely central reason that Jesus came. Please don't get me wrong. But Jesus not only came for our salvation, he also came for revelation. He came to reveal to us. He came to reveal the Father, didn't he? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if he's the image of God, he came to reveal our true humanity. He came to reveal what the image of God looks like. He came to reveal, he came as the one in whose image we were made. And it may well be, I want to suggest that if Jesus is the image of God and we are images of the image, even if human beings had not sinned in the beginning, it might still have pleased the Father to send the Son that we might behold the one true image of God in whose image we were all made. God may still have sent his son, to show us our true humanity, to show us the truly human one. We're all just copies of him. And maybe even without sin, Jesus may have still come to reveal that to us. Maybe. Talk with each other about that over morning tea. But of course, many of you know the story, humanity did sin. We messed up the image of God. And by rebelling against God, the image of God in humanity became distorted, it became twisted and warped out of shape. And so Christ came for both reasons. He came to reveal 
what the image of God looks like. And he came to restore and to repair and to renew the image of God in us. You know, that's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. You know what's happening when a person comes into relationship with Jesus for the first time? It's not just that they're becoming a Christian. It's not just that they're joining a Christian club. It's that they are reclaiming the image of God. They are being conformed into the image of Jesus. In a sense, when a person becomes Christian, they are becoming truly human. People have that sense sometimes, don't they? When you come into relationship with Jesus, it's like you're coming home. It's not like you're becoming something different. It's like you're becoming who you were created to be. You are rediscovering your true humanity because that's what being a Christian is. It is finally becoming fully and truly human because we were created for God and we were created for others and we were created for Jesus. And so when we come to know Jesus, we're becoming human again. That takes a bit of getting our heads around because we typically talk about our humanity like it's a negative thing. We say, well, I'm only human. We say, to err is human to forgive is divine. We kind of downplay the human side and we forget that in God's eyes, our humanity was and is a glorious thing. Yes, it's contaminated and corrupted and depraved by sin, but to be human is a good thing and God's in the business of restoring our humanity. When you became a Christian, you became human again. And you know what's happening since then? You know what your journey of being a Christian, growing as a Christian, your discipleship, you know what that is? That's the journey of becoming more and more human. Maybe that's a good way to talk about the life of a disciple. Big word is sanctification. That simply is the journey of becoming more and more human as we are conformed to the image of Jesus. Let me read you what Paul says about this. Have you got that quote there, Rob, from, um, where is it, 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, As we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's the journey we're on. That's the journey we're on as a church, is that day by day we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. We're being transformed into His image, and as that happens, because Jesus was the truly human one who bore the image of God, we are becoming more and more human. Great to think about, isn't it? I think it's quite a compelling way to think about the life of a disciple. And what does it mean? It means, again, those two simple things, that we as Christians are becoming more and more for God and for others. We're becoming more and more for God. We're deepening our relationship with God. We're sinking deeper and deeper into His grace every day. That's what being a Christian means. Not being a better person. God will bear fruit in our life, but it means that we are anchoring ourselves more and more deeply in God's grace. C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote on this. He's talking about prayer, not specifically the image of God at this point, but he has this beautiful little quote on prayer, which I think captures what I'm trying to say. He says, may it be the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou that I speak to. That's genuine relationship with God, isn't it? That's learning to speak to God from who we truly are. Not putting on masks, not pretending, not faking it. But may it be, when I address God, when I relate to God, may it be the real I. May I relate to him as I am broken and vulnerable and fallen but saved by grace. And may it be the real thou. In other words, may I learn to address God as He truly is, not with these distorted pictures of God that we have in our minds, not with this little caricature of God that I've developed, not with an image of God that's been passed down to me from someone else, not a second-hand image of God, 
But may I relate to God as He is, as I learn more about who God is, as I look in His Word and I study Him and I see who God is and and how He has made me and I learn about His attributes. May I relate to Him as He truly is so that it's the real me who speaks and it's the real God of the Bible, the God of Jesus, who I speak to. That's the journey, something of the journey, of us becoming more and more for God, more and more embedded in relationship with God. And then we become more and more for others. And at this point, we think about expressing the God, the image of God in relationship with others. Let me come back one more time to Karl Barth because he's got some wonderfully practical advice here. Even though he's a heavyweight theologian and he's, he's very academic, he brings it right down to ground level here. And when he talks about just expressing the image of God in everyday life, he's got four very practical things to call us back to and remind us of. He says, this is what it means for us to express the image of God to others, that I should see my neighbor as a real man, a real person, of course. Forgive the gender exclusive language, please. That I should speak to him and receive his answer as a real answer. Thirdly, that I should help him. And fourthly, that I should do these things gladly. That's maybe the hardest one. So he's talking about genuine relationships with one another, that we see each other as real people, that we don't just go through the motions in relationships. We don't just have these kind of superficial, flaky, surface-level relationships with one another, but we see each other, we treat each other, we approach each other as real people made in the image of God. And that goes not only for people we know, but for people that we don't know. But we treat all people, with the dignity and the glory of those made in the image of God, as real people, as loved by God as we are. Secondly, that I speak to them and receive their answer as a real answer. That, I think, talks about the kind of relationship we are to have, that it's genuine, that when we relate to others, that we listen, that we're fully present with people, not distracted, not kind of connected in a hundred different places, but as we relate to each other, that we are fully focused and fully present and that we take on board what others say and we have this beautiful dynamic of speaking and listening and giving and receiving, that we're in relationships with others that are mutual and reciprocal and life-giving and genuinely loving, just like Jesus. Thirdly, that we help others. Simple, eh? That we help, that we genuinely serve, we genuinely bless. We do what Jesus did, and we just move towards others with love and with kindness and with compassion. This is, this is what we should be doing, is seeking to serve and show compassion to other people, people that we know and people that we don't know. It makes you, it makes you ask the question in view of events in the last few days in the U.S., what does it mean for a Christian to express the image of God towards the refugee? What does it mean to express the image of God, not just to people that you already know in your little social circle, but to those who are refugees, to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, to the alien? Shouldn't it mean that we are trying to show as much compassion as we possibly can, genuinely helping others, even to the inconvenience sometimes of ourselves, setting our own needs aside so that we can be a blessing to other people? And then fourthly, that we should do these things gladly with a willing spirit, not begrudgingly, not because we have to, not because you heard a sermon and your pastor told you you needed to do this, but gladly because we love God and we love people and we want to serve and we want to express the image of God. This is what it is for us, to be God's image bearers. And all this needs to come out of a place of grace. 
please don't hear me saying that you just got to go out and try and be better and do better and strive and try harder and just mind your manners and all that kind of stuff. This has got to be coming out of a place where you are deeply established in God's grace. You're in this life-giving relationship with Him. And out of that, out of being for God, then you can be for others. And we've also got to remember that any progress we make in this journey, in this life, is only going to be very, very partial. It's going to be very, very incomplete. We can take baby steps, but we're waiting for the day when Jesus returns and then renews this world and renews us. And on that day, then we will bear the image of God fully. That's the end of the story, that we will then be perfect image bearers. We will be totally for God on that day, completely immersed in the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's what it means to be glorified. We'll be with God in glory. And we will be totally for others, living and breathing in perfect community in the new heavens and the new earth. And that means we will be human at last. God's intention in the end is not to make you something other than human, this kind of little floating spirit, but that we would be fully and finally human. And then we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ, the one in whose image we're created, the one in whose image we are being conformed to now and the one in whose image will finally one day be perfected. The church father Irenaeus once said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. It's a great quote and I've held on to it. A human being fully alive is what brings glory to God. And what does it mean to be fully alive? Not just a cliche of living life to the max. It means to be conformed to Christ. It means to fix our eyes on our true north, Jesus, who is the one true perfect image of God. It means he is the center of all that we are and all that we do. And it means exactly what Paul says, that by his grace and in his spirit and with the help of the community of faith that we're surrounded with, that every day we are conformed a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory until he comes again. Amen? May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one true image of God. And we thank you, Jesus, that when we see you, we see the Father. We see the wisdom of God. We see the power of God. We see the righteousness and the holiness of the Father. But Jesus, as we see you, we also see ourselves. We see who we truly are and who we were made to be. Jesus, when we look at you, we see our destiny. We see who we will one day be conformed to. That just as we bear the image of Adam now, the sinful image, one day we're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. We're going to bear the image of Jesus. So Jesus, we pray that you would focus us each day on yourself on the one true image of God. And we want to pray, God, through this year and through our lives, you would continually conform us in every part of our being to your image, in our thinking, in our relating to each other, in our family life, in our working life, in our social life, in our church life, in our educational life. Lord, whatever it is, would you be at work by your Spirit, conforming us to your image. And may it be, from beginning to end, a work of your grace and your spirit in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Conform us to your image, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.